Welcome back to Ride Home. And folks, we are so back. Uh, first, I want to apologize for the uh, two-month delay almost between our last episode. Our last episode was with Arnold uh, Kamler, the CEO of Kent Bikes, going over the history of bikes in America. That was a great show. Um, and um, from that show, we took some time to really uh, rethink how we wanted to do the podcast in 2024. So that's what we're going to present you with. Uh, some, so we're going to start to present that to you today. So the micro mobility market overall has been going through uh, quite a bit of what I'd call headwinds and tailwinds, tailwinds, and still a little bit of unknown winds as well. Um, that could be, you know, if you read the headlines, a lot of continued disruption in the shared micro mobility space, a lot of disruption, um, kind of not not good disruption, maybe bad disruption in the owned micro mobility space. Most recently, it was like with the cake going bankrupt or being sold off. Um, and then you also, of course, you know, what we've been able to do over the last couple of months, uh, the team of micromobility, we've gone to CES, we've gone to the AIM Expo, which is the largest power sports um, expo in, in North America. And what we've seen is uh, an awesome resurgence of a lot of the more traditional players, of course, electrifying their fleets. Uh, and then again, just a myriad of new startups coming out of out of the woodwork, making all kinds of amazing products. Uh, uh, products in the in both the, again like kind of in showing them at ces and then of course showing them at aim um so with that as a backdrop and now of course really excited to kick off the podcast this year i wanted to also tell you about a few announcements that we have uh, the first announcement is we've launched ride ai uh, this is a platform covering all the technology that moves us this um, we started this with a newsletter that newsletter is now out uh, you can subscribe to it at rideai.org um, and very soon, we're going to launch another podcast. Um, this will be uh, the Ride AI podcast, and we'll be doing this with Ed Niedemeyer, um, who many of you will know from the, the, the mobility world. Um, but Ed has been tirelessly covering the autonomous vehicle and just the overall vehicle tech landscape for 15 years now. Um, and he's going to be the person that will head up our podcast, much like Oliver Bruce started the Micromobility podcast. Uh, and as finally, as part of this launch, we will be announcing our Ride AI, Ride AI conference in Costa Mesa, California. That's in Southern California, the week of November 11th. This event will coincide with Micromobility America as well, the same week. So we'll be running both the Ride AI conference all around the celebration and platform for the technology that moves us alongside Micromobility America as a two-day event for the first time ever in Southern California. Um, so, you know, with that, of course, I think that, you know, when we have this big event, uh, new event, Ride AI, and then as well, we're moving micromobility from the Bay Area, Northern California to Southern California. Uh, why we're moving to Southern California, you might ask, uh, on top of being the largest market in the United States for small electric vehicles, we also think it represents the renaissance happening in the, what was a lot of people call the hard tech world, uh, both as it relates to autonomous, uh, AI and mobility. Uh, so SoCal, Southern California is home to um, so much mobility history, like the Howard Hughes and the Hughes Air Force Base, uh, the first West Coast refineries from John D. Rockefeller, and now is home to the largest um, sort of space exploration company in the world in SpaceX, and many startups that are looking to change the way we move. If you're on social media, you might be hearing about places like the Gundo, which is 
um, actually a city called El Segundo in Southern California that is uh, home to many hard tech hackathons and many companies that are now receiving investment to build what they, again, they call hard tech. Um, so we're very excited about going to Southern California. We're very excited about going to the OC fairgrounds in Costa Mesa. This space has uh, amazing event centers from a content perspective with beautiful stages uh, to also incredible space for exhibiting plenty of space, more space than we've ever had, uh, as well as also plenty of room for test track, uh, tr test tracks, uh, races, uh, and of course the rides that we were able to do in Amsterdam that la last year that we want to bring to America this year. Uh, so you can go to micromobility.io uh, to learn more about that uh, event in America. Of course, we have our European event coming up in June that we're very excited about as well. Um, and you can learn more there. So that's some updates and just, you know, it's been two months, so I realize it's a lot, but uh, appreciate you letting me get out of the way. Um, and now let's talk about the first show of the year. Um, so one thing that's clear in talking with many small uh, vehicle CEOs and is that they're looking at new distribution strategies. I heard this time and again at CES and AIM this year, and it's something that we see on our, in our Slack communities and other places. The big goal is to how, how do we get more butts in seats? And increasingly, the question is we need to break out or how do we break out of the DTC or direct-to-consumer model that so many micromobility companies have been in? Um, and so what we've worked on is we've been trying to, of course, talk to a lot of dealers and retailers and distributors and we plan to have them on the show um, this year as much as we can to really highlight their stories and how they like to work with small electric vehicle companies. This will also culminate, I should mention, in the first ever dealer awards. So to go along, we have the Riders Choice Awards, we have the Startup Awards, and now we'll have our first ever dealer awards at Micromobility America, where dealers from around the country will come and judge the best pitches for distribution from the best vehicle companies, of course, in America. And so with all that, again, as a backdrop, I wanted to start today by talking about the micromobility review marketplace and sort of how reviews are done for small electric vehicles today. And as along with, let's go through the history of some of it. So online reviews can make or break a lot of micromobility companies and of course, a lot of vehicle launches and specific vehicles. A great review can lead to pre-orders, can lead to investments, uh, and of course it can lead to revenue, whether that's for a new startup or so many of the companies that are now making the tradition from more of an acoustic approach to the micromobility market to more of an electric approach to the micromobility market. Um, and again, this is not, you know, when we, when we talk about reviews, everything from a one wheel to scooters, to e-bikes, to power sports, all the way up to, uh, you know, LSVs. And so today I'm excited that we actually have Tyson or Cassie on the podcast. Uh, Tyson has been working with us at Micromobility Industries as the chief reviewer at our sister company, Ride Review. Um, Tyson's been been doing this for about four months now, and I've learned a ton from him, and I've also been able to go to events like CES and um, AIM Expo with him. Um, but Tyson also just has an incredible history uh, of the industry, um, spending the majority of his time over the last many years at places like Electric Bike Review, which was just recently sold, actually. Um, but Tyson was a big part of that team, both on the technical development side of it, as well as the review side of it. Um, and really, I'd look at electric bike review as, you know, the, sort of the OG in the e-bike review space. Um, but Tyson also has, has branched out, worked with other sites, launched other sites, and, you know, of course, not only reviews electric bikes, but has also done reviews in um, the scooter, in the electric motorcycle space, and others. So with that, 
I want to uh, welcome Tyson to the show. How you doing, Tyson? Right on. Hey, James. Uh, man, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is exciting stuff. Uh, first, uh, first time doing a podcast, which I've always thought would be fun to do. So here we go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, it's funny. I'm sure for people um, that are listening to this, they might uh, they might recognize your voice because you've been on the YouTube channel and um, you know your your not with your vehicle reviews, but of course also with your CES name recaps. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of people are actually going to probably recognize you. It's it's possible, man. It's a it's such a weird niche industry to be in. I actually, you know, at a an event I was at last year, I was at the E Revolution Expo in Denver, and I had this kid come up to me and say like, "Hey, I know you. You're Tyson. I saw you on YouTube." I'm like, man, I'm, I feel like a little celebrity here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so let's go a little bit into your background. Like, how did you get involved in the space? Like, how did you become sort of a e bike and then a broader, you know, micro mobility review expert? Yeah, it's, I mean, honestly, I kind of fell into it by accident. I I have a pretty broad background. I've worked in a lot of different fields. But, you know, long story short, I was working as a software developer for Electric Bike Review, uh, running their tech platform, and they needed more people to do reviews. You know, the court was the only one doing reviews for the company and just had more demand than he could keep up with, was looking to hire outside for it. And I said, you know, hey, I would like to learn, you know, if you want to teach me, I think it sounds fun to do so he said okay let's do it he started training me and i discovered that i loved it like it's it's a lot of fun i have a, a background in performing arts and so i think that translated naturally to be on camera and you know, i'm a i'm a tech nerd that's why i've worked as a programmer i worked in it and so getting to work with e-bikes and scooters and one wheels you know all this stuff i was like this is really fun gadgets and so i just got hooked yeah, it makes sense. And I, yeah, it's so funny how life works out where you just kind of fall into these things. And let's take a moment to talk about Court because I think he's a really interesting figure as well. Um, mm -hmm. it, just recently sold his his, his company, um, you know, and which should be probably a, a nice celebration for him. Um, but yeah, what was what was Court like? What was Court's vision? Again, he was one of the first electric bike review websites out there, and of course, built a tremendous uh, review channel. Um, yeah, just love to learn some of the intricacies about him and what made him, what made that site great, what made him great. For sure. Um, he's a great person to talk about because he, he shaped a lot of you know, how I approach reviews today. Uh, he was really my role model for it. And I think he's unique or, you know, was unique in the review space. Um, he's always had a very like a direct, authentic approach and has really taken the like in-depth, uh, you know, high levels of expertise approach to all of his review stuff. He's probably the most educated person when it comes to small electric vehicles, especially electric bikes. Just his wealth of knowledge of the, the different, you know, components and uh, design styles and the brands that are out there. And he's probably personally reviewed over 2000 electric bikes, uh, ranging from, you know, cheap $500 Costco Jetsons to, you know, $1,500 premium Trek uh, mountain bikes and so he has, he has a wealth of knowledge which just always continued to astound me and so it was very cool to get to kind of you know learn from him in the space and then it was also very cool just to see his review style because he mm -hmm. you know his style is more or less the style that i've adopted of being very low tech uh very personable very uh, we always called it run and gun where you know i'm just out here with a gopro by myself talking directly to the camera showing you things on the bike as if you're right there with me so it's very low production value, but it translates to 
a more direct personal connection. And a lot of viewers have provided the feedback that they feel they feel more connected and feel that, that you can trust us a little bit more being that close to it. Yeah, uh, your your style there is very um, yeah, like like your low tech GoPro style, the run and gun concept. I think is it's fascinating to watch. Like I, I'm always so impressed with how you can actually pull it together like so low tech. Um, which is that's cool to hear that that comes from Court and yeah, like the story of Court as I understand it, you know, kind of like sleeping in his car, just doing reviews, like being pretty hyper obsessed about it in the 2013 2014 timeframe uh, is is again that's that's really cool. And then what was what was it like as the site grew? Did things change? Did it become more serious? Um, you know, I'd also I should mention with Court's business model, Court never took affiliates, which is a very popular way, of course, for many websites to stay afloat and make money, but. Court was pretty anti-affiliate, which is impressive um, as a, you know, cutting off that revenue stream. But yeah, just curious how it evolved over time and uh, what, what that looked like over time. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you mentioned a great point about the start of the larger bike review for the first, you know, I don't know how many years it was quite literally court, you know, sleeping in his Prius, driving around the country, uh, you know, convincing bike shops to let him borrow one of their bikes for a few hours. So he could do a review, uh, you know, he would, Find one on Craigslist that somebody was selling and say, okay, can I pay you, you know, 50 bucks to just do a review of your bike for the day? And that was how we kind of built up his, his starting inventory. Um, and then as it grew, you know, more brands started to take notice and would actually reach out to him. But yeah, he was always a very anti-affiliate. Um, for a long time, he didn't charge for reviews. Eventually he moved into a kind of a flat rate model where companies would pay in advance, you know, so a flat sum to sponsor the review. Um, but you'd make it very clear that there's, uh, you know, I am doing my best to be objective and unbiased. You know, if somebody paid him for a review at the start of the video, he would say, Hey guys, just want to let you know, you know, so-and-so company paid me $500 to do this review. I'm still doing my best here to be unbiased for you guys. I want to be upfront about that. So I think that helped a lot to, to build trust and to establish himself sort of as the kind of the unbiased review champion, you know, people would. Mm -hmm. watch other reviews on youtube and they would say well we're going to go to ebr and see you know see what court says about it you know he's he'll tell us yeah uh, he'll tell us the straight truth about it and i'm amazed that he managed to stick to that as the company grew i mean it it grew to have a huge web traffic volume uh the forums on electric bike review to this day are more more highly trafficked than the website is itself uh, and mm -hmm. through that, he kept this, he kept the same style, the same unbiased approach. He refused to ever do any kind of affiliate partnerships. And, you know, the idea behind that was that you, even if you got paid a flat rate up front to review a bike, he would not be vested in how well that bike would sell. So he could tell you the truth in the video. He wouldn't have any affiliate money at stake if he called out a junk bike as a junk bike and nobody bought it. You know, it would still be all the same to him. And that was really his mission was he... You know, this this is a very fun story about how Electric Bike Review started that I think a lot of people don't know is that Court was recovering from a skiing injury. He hurt his knee. And so he looked into getting an electric bike for himself while he was recovering. And he had such a terrible time trying to navigate the marketplace. You know, this was in 2010, 2011, uh, when it was just a little bit more wild, wild west. There wasn't a lot of good resources for people buying an electric bike. And he had such a terrible time with it that he said, you know what? somebody should do something about this. There should be some kind of an online resource for people to mm. help them to make these decisions and get a good product. So that's why he started the company and really stuck with that mission all the way until the end when he sold it, uh, you know, just a few months ago. Yeah, it's a, it, 
it, well, again, yeah, I think some of those little nuggets there are really interesting, you know, starting with the idea that, you know, back in the day you got an electric bike because you had like a bad knee injury, right? Now, of course, you, you get an electric bike because it's like the best solution no matter what, even if you have good knees. But, um, you know, you think about it like, yeah, that's definitely where some of that early adoption came from was uh, was people that were, uh, you know, literally in, in rough shape. Um, okay. So, and then, you know, well, I guess to maybe fast forward a little, it's interesting because um, I think Court's model of never allowing for affiliates was, of course, a, a really solid model. The the worry that I think our industry has to think about, and I know this has happened in other industries, um, like the mattress industry online, where what ends up happening is, you know, independent people that start these businesses for whatever reason, they're excited about it. Um, they ultimately get bought up and they often get bought up, bought up by centralized groups. In the case of the mattress industry, all the best sites were rolled up by an affiliate group. That affiliate group then raised the prices on their affiliate fees to the point where they, because they basically had control of the market, the review market. And then a lot of the mattress businesses went out of business because all the margin was actually taken away from them and given to the affiliates. Um, did you see that? Or, or what do you think about that and that idea as Court is now sold, it's no longer independent. I think it's been bought by a you know company that does a lot of affiliates. Uh, do, do you do you have any concern about that? How uh, e-bike businesses, other e-scooter businesses, might lose margin as these independent review sites? There's more consolidation, or do you, do you have an opinion on that? I'm just curious. A hundred percent, and I mean, unfortunately, I think the, you know it's going the way you described, it, like with the mattress industry and so many others. Um, there's, you know, I think of it as the the rise of the review conglomerate is, is sort of how it feels. And the, you know, this company, which the company that bought Electric Bike Review, uh, which is a company named Affiliate Partners, they you know they have it right in the name. They're they're all about the <laughs> affiliate approach, and they actually they actually approached Court to buy his website uh, years ago. I want to say this was in 2018 or 2019, and their pitch at the time was they had identified the e-bike market as one that was going to grow astronomically in the coming years. And they wanted to, like I quote, own the e-bike review space. And so Core yep. didn't sell to them at the time, but they ended up buying Electric Bike Report, uh, who was actually run by a friend mm -hmm. of Ports that started around the same time. They're kind of the, you know, they're both sort of the, the OGs in that e-bike specific review space. Yep. Uh, so, you know, affiliate partners bought them. They launched their own websites. Uh, think they bought maybe one other smaller one that I know of and then you know they just bought ports a few months ago and so they are you know they're they're doing the thing they're owning the space um and so I'm curious to see what will happen I, I think that there's still enough independent reviewers out there and you know thanks to the way social media works and especially YouTube there's a lot of really great independent reviewers out there that you know you can, you can do a lot with a relatively small audience and still be important in the space. And you find a few companies that want to work with you. You don't have to review every brand that's out there. You, know, you, can, you can find your niche. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that it's not going to be a total takeover, but you know, it's hard to say um, as, as the industry grows, you know, I mean, we both know how micro mobility is still, you know, hasn't even come close to reaching just the, I don't know, the, the market cap that it has the potential to. So we'll, we'll probably see more review companies. Yeah. Right? Just, own the space as much as possible yeah there's uh yeah so it's like it's interesting because you know on one end there's like hey there's still plenty of choice out there like you mentioned you go to youtube you see plenty of reviewers 
the the challenge the more you know the industry is like a lot of times there's like a power law right where the traffic ultimately goes towards like the biggest guys both youtube and on websites and electric bike review electric bike report two of those as like two like you mentioned the ogs of the space the most history the most kind of compounding growth to them um and again it's funny it's like the mattress industry case study appears like it could happen and uh, you know again it's almost like not so worried about consumers because clearly i think these companies that you know they buy them and they do a good job of letting them be run um but you do you do sort of worry about the businesses like okay you know can you afford to lose you know you're gonna have to pay more and can you afford that that's that's a question that we'll we'll just sort of have to see and then you know the reviews industries are funny right like i think if we all could you know have some drinks around the table you could tell some pretty interesting stories about what is like known and not known about like who owns what review site um you know we've seen this in the scooter space we've seen this in other spaces right and i'm not going to call anyone out right now but like there's some pretty there's some pretty funny stories there where you're like uh i don't think a lot of people actually know yeah you know, i don't think a lot of scooter companies might know like when they pay someone where you know you know who actually that check ends up with so Anyway, we're not in the <laughs> yeah. we're not in the crazy rumor reveal business, but I'll say there's like stuff in that business where you're like, wow, that's uh, that's super interesting. And, but again, I think ultimately a lot of these people do really great jobs. And yes, there might be some conflicts, but like I think they do their best. And I think folks like you, Tyson, clearly do your best to you know be independent, be objective, and uh, you know give 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 the the end user the best possible experience. Um, so with that, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about, of course. Uh, uh, your time with Electric Bike Review. I, I do have an interesting question for you and Cord. And, you know, even the, you know, clearly you were building a lot of the site. Uh, what I saw on that website was a lot of focus on the dealers, a lot of the focus on the local shops and things like that, and trying to get those local shops traffic. And again, I always found that to be a bit contrarian, right? Because you're this big, large review site. Um, you know, why, why was there maybe uh, such a focus on these local dealers and trying to drive demand and traffic to these local dealers? Versus like, hey, let's just focus more on a DTC brand. It's, it clearly, you're not doing affiliate, but there's just like maybe a little bit more of a digital savviness there. But what I saw was like, hey, we're really trying to help people in their local areas find local shops. Um, and so, yeah, why was that? Why was that such a big part of the strategy? Mostly because, and I think this really speaks to you know, Port's dedication to his mission of being there to help people. Um, if you are buying an e-bike, especially for the first time you are going to have a much better experience if you go through a dealer that is in your local, you know, in your local town, in your city. Uh, if you, if you buy a bike, you're a consumer, um, you know, even if you might pay a bit less for it, you have to assemble it when you get it, which you never done before is honestly pretty daunting. You know, the first few that I did, they mm -hmm. took forever, especially, you know, the manuals are typically not very good. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, some of these bikes are heavy too. You know, you might need a second person there to help you put it together. And you also have to go over the whole bike, make sure everything's tightened up. You know, you don't want to be worrying when you're cruising down the road at 20 or 28 miles per hour. You know, does this not fall apart on me because I missed something? Um, and so, and then also, you know, if you go in and buy it from a dealer, uh, you can get a bike that actually fits you. You can test ride it before you buy it. They will professionally fit it to you. They will take care of your maintenance down the road. You know, if you have a warranty claim, you just take it in and have them take care of it. Direct-to-consumer companies have been notoriously bad about how they handle warranty claims, and even if they're trying to do it right, there's just there's so much back and forth. You have to send them videos of stuff, and you know, maybe they're going to ship you apart, or you have to take it to some dealer who's authorized to work with them in another city. There's just 
so many he potential headaches if you go the direct consumer route that in court's opinion don't justify the you know few hundred dollars that you save buying it that way and so he really wanted to elevate the dealer approach for people who are not you know at home tinkerers and e-bike repair experts and i think some of it also is just the community aspect you're supporting your local community instead of you know, some company that is, you know, headquarters here in the U.S., but, you know, for all intents and purposes, is really coming out of China. Not that all the direct-to-consumer companies are, but we've really had an influx of those. And so, yeah, I think it mostly comes down to, like, those two, like, better experience and, you know, support your, support your local shops whenever you can. And to that note, he had, you know, they have a, maybe 10,000 uh, local electric bike shops on their shop directory on the website now. And most of those do not pay anything. Like, you know, there's a very cool model where any shop can be on there for free and you show up on the full directory page and then they could pay just uh -huh. a little bit of money, like 17 bucks a month to show up in some, you know, kind of a premium, I guess you would call it like ad placement spots where if, if you're looking at a review of a rad power bike, then, you know, underneath the video, it would say, Hey, here's some you know, promoted shops that carry rad power bikes in your area. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's technically an ad, but for somebody on the site, that's actually a very you know, useful ad to say like, Hey, you know, you might be able to buy this shop, you know, right down the street, right here. And it's you know, much more relevant yeah. than typical advertising methods. Well, yeah. And just like 10,000 shops is so cool. Like that's amazing. That that's a nice, <clears throat> that's an incredible marketplace that you're able to build up there. And, um, you know, again, I think that's, that's really good. I, I would be curious, Tyson, where do you stand? So you've been doing this for so many years, like. You've seen the DTC approach. You've seen the bike shop approach. You've mentioned a little bit already about the issues with warranties and try to capture videos. Like, um, you know, a new person comes to you and they say, Hey Tyson, um, what I, I need to get a bike. Are you telling them to go the DTC route? Are you telling them to go the bike shop route? Like, are you, are you partial there? I'm just curious. I definitely favor the bike shop route. Um, what I recommend to people though is if there's a, a DTC bike that you've got your eyes on, you really want, you know, maybe just, you know, stop in at your local bike shops to ask them like, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to buy such and such bike. Can I ship it here and have it assembled? If I need work on it in the future, you know, do you guys, will you guys work on this brand? More and more bike shops are starting to do that. You know, I have one two blocks from my house that specializes in, he, he says, I'll fix any e-bike, I don't care where you got it. I don't care if you built it yourself. I have the expertise to work on it, so bring it on in. So, you know, anyone here, I tell them, you know, yeah, buy whatever you want. This guy can be your local shop. Uh, you know, you might have to pay him for something that's supposed to be under warranty to your other place, but you you have you have a, an avenue of you know handling anything that might go wrong with your bike. But I don't recommend just straight buying DTC for anyone that's not you know a little bit of a tinker and willing to work on. So typically I'll mm -hmm. ask these questions of people, you know, when they're asking me for recommendations, it's like, oh, well, what's your experience? Have you written one before? You know, do you, are you mechanically inclined or not? And then from there, I can give them a better recommendation. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you, how do you deal with like, so, you know, if you think about it, like let's just use in the U.S., like, you know, maybe the big three DTC brands would be a electric, rad, Aventon. Now, Aventon and Rad also have a distribution footprint from dealers. Um, but I'm curious how you think about that and those recommendations. And of course, like that's really cool model, your the, the the shop you just mentioned where it's like, bring me anything and I'll fix it. Versus like a challenge I see at the local dealer market oftentimes is some, well, not 
yeah, is they'll often have brands that I've never heard of that maybe are from China or, you know, where they've got a deal with them. But, you know, now you're worried like, okay, I think might be the only person that's ever bought this bike, right? Type thing. Um, and so how do you, how do you <clears throat> counterweight that? Like, do you see that a lot in the dealerships where they're carrying kind of, I don't want to say crappy vehicles, but, you know, vehicles where you're like, man, I've never seen that before, but literally got like sold into this local shop. Do you think there's a lot of risk there in buying sort of an off, uh, not as well-known brand that's somehow in these local dealerships? Oh, there definitely can be. I, I still think it's uh, significantly less risky than if you were to buy that same bike online, because at least you you, you have a physical location <laughs> yeah. that you can take it back into. You know, if it breaks down in a month, you can go back in there and say, you know, hey, what the heck, you know, help me out here. And so I, I think I think just general good consumer practices uh, and safe buying habits would probably come into play here where it's you know if you're gonna buy any e-bike from a shop you know talk to the people there get a sense for you know get a sense for them how they're running their business uh you know if, if it's a bike brand that you've never heard of before but the sales rep can you know, tell you all about it and tell you why they decided to carry it and why they re are recommending it to you then i would feel pretty safe doing that but if they mm -hmm. they don't give you much information and it feels like they're you know just trying to get rid of it uh, that uh, that would probably be a red flag yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, let's move into maybe a little bit more of the criteria and actually working with companies and what that's like. So maybe what's the, maybe I love a story on like, what's the craziest thing you ever got where you're like, I can't believe they shipped this to me. Um, or, you know, just given the state of it or like that you never heard from them again. Like, do you have any crazy stories like that? I mean, I've heard crazy stories like that. So I'm curious if you have any directly yeah. though on like, let's see. Um, I mean, I have a few. I, I mean, this is one of the lessons I had to learn early on in my reviewing career was don't say yes to everything <laughs> because there are hmm. there's, there's companies who are you know trying to get into the market and desperate to get reviews who just you know they're like oh we'll send they you know they're backed by a lot of money they got review emails to send. Um, I I got a few sketchy products in the early days. One of which was pitched to me as being a transforming vehicle that could transform between an e-bike to a seated scooter to a standing scooter but it wasn't really clear on how that would work and so but i you know i was desperate to get reviews and so i said sure send me one and i ended up getting three huge boxes that had one of each of the vehicles in it that <laughs> didn't actually appear to be able to like transform between the two it seemed like it was just three different products that kind of sort of shared the same frame <laughs> um and had a lot of just very strange design decisions like i i don't even remember a lot of it but it was i mean they had derailers on them that were some brand i'd never heard of before which is crazy in this day and age you know it's you know everything's got shimano mm -hmm. or on the high end you might see some shram or you it depends on the market there's there's only a few names for these and so you just all of the components were stuff i'd never seen before they were using uh rim brakes on uh, on all of them which you know you see on traditional bicycles but are not up to the task of heavier electric vehicles uh and then to make right. things more interesting the company appeared to just drop off the map uh, i had had these things for yeah. maybe a month and was finally getting to like try and film stuff for them and the reps stopped responding their website went down they just disappeared and I, and so I ended up like, I didn't do a review for them. I ended up just, you know, selling them super cheap to a neighbor and had to tell them, you know, Hey, 
this company doesn't exist. I have no idea about the quality of these, you know, but you know, it's up to you for a few hundred bucks for all of them. And so they were willing to yeah. take that gamble. Yeah, I, I think you, it's like, uh, it is amazing some of the Wild West that's going on out there. I mean, again, for a lot of companies, I assume, do you often have issues that are lost in translation? I mean, sometimes you're talking to, again, Chinese manufacturers directly on, you know, maybe WeChat. Um, do you ever just like, are you just ever not able to get on the same page with a manufacturer? Um, is that is that a problem? Yes. That's uh, honestly <laughs> a significant problem. Like it's, it has gotten better. Um, it's gotten a lot better, but the, the language barrier. Can I ask a question on that, on the getting better? Like, do you think it's getting better because of AI? Do you think people are oh, using 100%. like GPT to talk to? It, it yeah. has, it's, but it's helping. It actually makes it oh, better. Yeah. Oh yeah. I pull it for like that's I think an excellent use of, <laughs> of AI tools. Um I mean sure. that's a powerful thing, even if you speak you know, even if you're a native speaker for whatever language, you know, running that through chat GPT sure. just to kind of check for tone and errors and stuff can be really powerful. And so yeah, it's I mean, in my experience it's gone from, you know, emails that I can barely read that have you know, horrible grammar and just a lot of translation errors to suddenly it's just like perfect well-constructed english sentences like oh this is awesome and i like there's no way that they suddenly started hiring uh you know full-time u.s reps over here they're using some tools to do this which you know good for them it makes yeah. my job easier it's a win totally that's fascinating i think it's great i mean it's again it's one of those things in a you know in a, in a global economy um that might it, it could really help. I've, you know, we, of course we work with a lot of, uh, brands overseas and I've noticed that too, where I'm like, wow, that there is a lot more emails that are a lot more legible than they used to be. And, um, they must be using tools. And that's, that's like you said, that's, uh, that, that's super, super great. Um, let's talk about, I mean, cause I, so we've, we've talked a lot about bikes so far, but clearly, you know, you're, you're, you're doing electric skateboards, one wheels, scooters. Um, what are these, what are the non- bike micro markets like from a review perspective like right now i'd be curious where you think they are in the sort of evolution of things like clearly you know e-bike reviews 2014 it's almost 10 years now pretty healthy mature nice you know engine behind it i'd be curious what you think of the state of electric scooter reviews the electric one-wheel world the electric motorcycles power sports etc like what what are those industries like from a review perspective they're quite a bit different. Um, the, you know, and most of my background has been in the electric bike space and it's kind of difficult to break into the other markets. Um, one, I, I guess the most significant trend that I've noticed is especially when you get into skateboards and one wheels and stuff like that, they tend to favor influencers over reviewers mm-hmm. and a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, and I, and I think it's as you get further away from a mobility vehicle as a as like a, as a utility, you know, it, I'm using this for commuting. I'm using this to go get groceries or whatever. You, know, you can't really do that on one wheel, you know. And and uh-huh. for skateboard, you can use for some basic commuting. But uh, people tend to buy those more for you know hobby and fun. There's a little bit more of a lifestyle factor to it. And so it seems like those companies go after influencers rather than reviewers because that's uh, you know, they're trying to sell the lifestyle more than they are, you know, the I don't know the I guess just the the blunt attributes of the product uh, from a technical perspective. Uh, and so you know, scooters are kind of in the middle of that gap. There's a yeah. lot of them that are more utility focused, and there's some that are just pure adventure rides. 
And so I've, I've been able to do a lot of scooter reviews, honestly, like those have been just as easy to get as electric bike reviews. Uh, but you know, skateboards and, uh, you know, I've never got future motion to send me a one wheel, you know, still, still holding out on that one. <laughs> but, uh, wow. know, my style yeah, been, we saw them. You know, that's, I, that's I, crazy. I more like the, the, the review expert review tack versus, uh, versus the you know, more influencer focus. Okay. That's a really cool insight. So basically on a spectrum, it sounds like what you're saying is the more utility the product provides, the more, it seems like the more likely the industry is to understand and respect the review process, the more it's maybe mm -hmm. lifestyle, niche, fun, you know, kind of this little toy, that's more the influencer model. I would think clearly all these markets move towards utility over time, right? In some way, I think, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what you probably want to be, you know, the more you're like a true tool, the, the more you can charge, the more you can, you know, the lifetime value I assume goes up and things like that. So that's interesting. Even like, you know, you think about, oh, Court originally gets into electric bike reviews because he hurts his knee. That's like a very niche case, but now everyone kind of rides an e-bike. So now, you know, it's much bigger. Mm -hmm. Maybe the one wheel, maybe the one wheel is always niche, although I assume Kyle and Jack and that crew would disagree with us. Um, you know, and so, because yeah, you would think, um, well, you just think that, in a, you know, like ultimately the influencer thing is like one part of the marketing strategy and it maybe pops a little bit, but like ultimately when it becomes a buying decision and the buying decision is north of X dollars, which of course a lot of these things are, are, are pretty meaty purchases. You really want that, you know, you're willing to sit for the review. You want to know the review before you put the money down. So yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a, an interesting um, concept. So on, on scooters is, has that, what's that like? Is that becoming bigger? Is it, is it moving faster than e-bikes? Uh, how would you come? Yeah, let's start, let's start there. Where would we, how would you compare scooters to e-bikes and the, the maturity of the market and, and which market's kind of moving faster and growing faster? Ultimately it, it depends on, on where you're talking about. Like that's one of the challenging things here is that, I mean, all of these, all of these micro mobility vehicles are so dependent upon infrastructure and policy, uh, you know, where, where you live, you know, if it's safe to ride it or not. And so where, where I live in Northern Colorado, uh, what I kind of, what I use to sort of gauge, you know, popularity and how these markets are growing is for me, a lot of times is I will get something to review and then I see how easy it is for me to sell it after the review, you mm -hmm. know, if it's, uh, if I get a powerful dual motor, like off-road adventure scooter, that thing is going to be gone in a week. Those are just extremely hot up here. People love to go on adventure. You know, Northern Colorado is all about going outdoor and fitness, excitement, adrenaline. And so it's a very good market for that. But if I get a, a commuter scooter, you know, to give you an example, I had a, a Yadea Elite Prime, which is their like top yep. of the line commuter. I mean, it is a probably the best built best engineered scooter that I have ever ridden on in my life. It's just fantastic, but, uh, it's designed for city commuting and it can only go 19 miles per hour. And I ended up selling that for, you know, maybe 40% of what it was worth after two months of having it on Facebook marketplace because nobody wanted it. And in a, mm. you know, in, in a different sort of a market that probably would have been very easy to sell. I think yeah, they has been a lot bigger for scooters in Europe. And so you know, that probably would have been. You know, yes, we grab over there. Uh, it just has so much utility and will last forever. And so, yeah, it's like I, overall, I think the scooter market is growing, but it's just it's it's very uneven. 
based on where and the use case uh, and heavily influenced by you know, local policy and infrastructure. Yep. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And yeah, you mentioned it there. It's also worth just reiterating to the audience, which they might know, but um, it does seem like the biggest marketplace now for selling is Facebook marketplace. I'm curious in Colorado, um, here in Southern California, another big market is OfferUp. Have you seen OfferUp take off at all in, in Colorado? No, I've, uh, I mean, I've heard of it, you know, in passing, I've never used it. Um, I've, you know, they used to be completely Craigslist for many years and finally switched over to Facebook marketplace because you know, Craigslist has just kind of died. It still, you know, depending on what you're selling, it can still be fairly big, but, uh, I think Facebook marketplace is just absolutely crushing it. You know, they have a easier interface to navigate and everybody's on Facebook. Yeah. So it's, you know, people, uh, if, if one of your friends lists something on Facebook marketplace, you're going to see that even if you don't know that Facebook has a marketplace until that point in time. Yes. So you yeah, you can cast such a wider net. It's, it's a, it's a wild world. We like could dedicate an entire podcast to, um, I mean, again, I know a lot of people have a lot, a lot of strong feelings about Facebook being bad, et cetera, which is fine. But like Craigslist became such a haven for bad people doing bad things that mm -hmm. like the spam and the, you know, the, the phishing scams on Craigslist and the, lack of oh, yeah. accountability from Craigslist to shut that down and like make it not happen anymore versus Facebook marketplace or offer up is like astounding. So again, it's a good example of like, uh, you know, um, it's nice to see new markets cause I've heard so many terrible stories of people trying to sell e-bikes on Craigslist and getting ripped off. And, you know, it's so frustrating cause it's all this, it's all the same fishing stuff that like, you know, we, you know, it should be something that these companies are held accountable for. Um, not letting their users become so. Yeah, I I haven't heard about a lot of phishing on Facebook, and you know that's great. And for people out there selling, I'd highly recommend checking out Facebook Marketplace or OfferUp as a alternative to Craigslist. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully, in your local area, it might be different. Well, Facebook probably is fine in your local area. OfferUp, I found to be really good in California. I can't speak for it outside of California, though. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a good point. And now let's also talk about. So we were at AIM. Um, a couple weeks ago in Vegas, AIM is the largest uh, uh, North American motorsports uh, event every year. Um, we saw a lot of power sport vehicles. This is uh, electric side-by-sides, electric motorcycles, electric dirt bikes. We saw um, what we th I think is maybe the largest growing, the fastest growing category, which is the sort of the e-moto category. That would be your um, e-ride heroes, your Saronsters, your Tolerias. Um, I say that right, Tolerias. I never know how to say that. Um, yeah, I think so. What was, <laughs> what were you most excited about at AIM? What you saw in the that kind of power sport world, and what do you think you'll be most interested in kind of reviewing in the in the in that power sport area? I, I mean, hundred percent the e motos for sure. I mean, it's that's where I've seen I guess the most exciting new growth, and it's I don't I don't even know how how I would put this uh, untapped market, and also just the uh, there's so much uncertainty in the electric motorcycle space around the uh, you know regulations and who can ride what where and i mean that's especially in the sort of this you know questionably street legal dirt bike space with stuff like surons where you've got kids tearing around on these things that are you know dangerously powerful for an adult um but also even just in the you know, really cool electric motorcycles like the stuff from rivet and land moto district that are just so well designed and for a you know for a, a city bike that you're riding in an urban area they just it makes so much sense especially for you know rivets doing great stuff with their batteries where they pop out they got wheels on the bottom 
and plug them into a 120 mm-hmm. volt outlet, you know, so you can, you can roll that into work with you and charge it up. Like that is, uh, and you know, the potentials for battery swapping, especially you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of that here in the U S but you know, in, uh, in, in Asia and in Africa as well, battery swap networks are becoming the standard. And for an electric motorcycle, it's just, it's such an excellent application uh, of that technology. You know, these batteries are small enough that you can reasonably swap and you can have, instead of charging everywhere, you just drop in, pop in a battery, you're out of there faster than uh, filling up a tank of car, uh, tank of gas in your car. Um, so yeah, the e-motorcycle space, I think is like easily the most exciting and you know, the, the e-ride uh, dirt bikes are probably the coolest ones that I've seen in a long time. Like they're doing some really good stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a stat there that I think our, our friends from Nui shared, which is the, the e-moto. So kind of the Suron Taria and now Nui has one, the e-ride hero, as you mentioned, um, that space is now, is bigger than the U.S moped space that's gas and electric mm-hmm. so there's more of these style of e-moto uh, units selling every year than the entire gas and electric moped space in california uh, in, in the united that's states wild. which is you know it's wild like it's not clearly mopeds are bigger in europe for instance than in other places in asia and other places than in the u.s but still the u.s has a lot of mopeds and so this space is brand new it's already growing faster um and i would i would highlight you know and I'd be curious what you think, but, you know, uh, a big reviewer in the Emoto space is uh, Saronster, uh, you know, and the work that he does on, on YouTube. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what you think of Saronster and his sort of style of review and his sort of style of building community. Yeah, Saronster, I mean, it's, I have really enjoyed watching his videos, but there's been so many of them that I've seen where I thought, like, I was just like, I can't believe he left this part of the video in. I'm like, I can't believe these guys are doing that right now. You know, like it's, I, I don't know. There's the things that I've edited out of my videos, um, you know, because it's like, oh, you know, we, we all ran a stop sign right here. I don't want to leave that in and rouse somebody up. And that's like a, you know, that's like a headline for them. It's like, oh, we tore up this private property and got into a fight with the cops or something. Um, yeah. Which, yeah definitely good entertainment but i also like i I worry about that kind of stuff because it's it it, it is not helping the people who are writers in this space who are you know advocates for emotos uh gaining more widespread adoption um because we you know we got to think about you know how we're using these in our communities you know using them responsibly um and it's uh you know it's really the wild wild west out here for that stuff like it's there's no regulation no one knows how to regulate it it's way too easy for anyone to get their hands on one and then want it out to be just insanely powerful, which, you know, don't get me wrong, the adrenaline junkie in me loves that. You know, love to ride around on one of those. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a there's a time and place for that. <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, what the answer is, I'm not sure, um, but we're, we're definitely not there yet. Yeah, and I mean, I think what Sronster has touched to me is like he just has that infectious energy that makes him entertaining, right? There's like high entertainment value to some to watch for whatever reason. To me, watching someone ride and kind of the his narrative is so fun. Like, oh, and I almost feel like I'm on the the, the vehicle with him, um, and I think he does such a good job in in that respect. So I do, I really appreciate him for that. I think the other side of it, as you're mentioning, is you know, he's got, he's got a lot of, he's got a huge following, you know, he's kind of the Mr. Beast of the, 
uh, clearly of the emoto space. Um, but you know, he has a lot of responsibility, I think, on his hands ultimately, because a lot of kids watch him, a lot of people watch him, and so he's just got to figure out that line of you know how much is he promoting. You know, it's kind of like you know we talked to the e ride CEO, and you know his big thing was like, I want a sticker on all my vehicles that says like, "Don't be a jackass," right? Um, mm-hmm. Again, that's that's hard to do because a lot of that style of riding. I mean, we all grew up skateboarding. We all grew up doing things that like, you know, we're being kids and we have fun. And so, you know, there's a show called Jackass that like, you know, celebrated this. Um, and so how do you balance that? And because um, in some ways these kids are, are, are doing anything wrong and they are just having fun and, you know, and that's important, especially off-road and, you know, we all dirt biked and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, there's a balance there. I think what I ultimately appreciate about Saronster and his style though is like, he has an infectious energy about him, his enthusiasm, like it's fun to, to watch. And oh, absolutely. Feel. Um, even as I really would, of course I wouldn't ride like that. Um, but I can, I can kind of get a little bit of that feeling through him. And so I, there's like a whole class of review that's like that. I think you do a little bit of that Tyson with your, your, your body GoPro cam and stuff when it's riding that, um, for whatever reason you might think like, oh, that footage is not that good, but you know, it is, it does, it does become fun to kind of ride along with it. So there's that, 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 that that whole class and that whole world. And, um, I mean, the, the, clearly the biggest thing with the emoto world that needs to be said is like this whole, not only you mentioned the regulation side, but it's also just like the company side, like who are these companies <laughs> where, you know, what are the faces behind these companies? Like none of that is even understood. And, you know, we're talking about half million or more units being shipped every year at some point. I feel like these companies need to be a little more public on who they are and they need to come forward and also invest in communities and in education and all the things that like, you know, seeing what the motor mm-hmm. MIC motor motorcycle industry council has done over the years, like that needs to be built for the emoto category completely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh you, we, I, we've talked to this about this before with Suron where it's like, we don't really know very much, you know, about these bikes in the company. You know, it's just kind of, suddenly they're everywhere <laughs> and uh uh and then uh you know there's other companies i think that are really being shining examples of doing that uh you know rivet for example uh, will pay to sponsor your basic motorcycle training you know they'll you get one of their bikes they'll cover yeah. you know, the cost for you to go learn how to ride it safely um and you know when we were at aim we got to talk to uh what was his name aaron i think the you know founder of e-ride who was able to just yep. share so much about you know his philosophy and his background and exactly why it's designed this way and you know, his thoughts on so many things um in the space that was you know very cool to get to connect like that and actually you know feel like you know something about where it's coming from yeah totally totally i agree yeah i mean it's just like we gotta we gotta get air on the pod because clearly the emoto category is so wild and he was such a champion for you know comes from the traditional moto industry and i think he he really needs to take a leadership position probably for the category on like you know what what where he sees the category going um tyson we're running out of time i wanted to you know clearly you're going to be at microbody europe this year america this year um we're super excited to have you there and a lot of your reviewing are there things that you saw at ces or aim that you're hoping to see at microbody europe or america or um are there trends you didn't see there that you hope to see at our events i'm just I'm just curious what you foresee for the year and what you're most interested in, you know, kind of reviewing and, and talking to, you know, your community about. 
Uh, yeah, the, honestly, the stuff I'm most excited to see is like, I'm really passionate about the sort of the last mile delivery space and just cargo and, you know, more, more utility in general. There's been some really cool products that I've seen uh, with, you know, cargo mopeds and, uh, I, I forget the name of the company, but there's somebody who's making a cargo electric motorcycle. That's got a sort of like a modular cargo bay in between the two wheels that, uh, can haul. I don't remember. It was like three or 400 pounds of cargo. I'm like, I just, I love the utility aspect of that stuff. And it's something I didn't see at all at uh, CES or AIM. I mean, it makes sense for AIM. It's you know, more power sports focused, but for CES this year, I was honestly really just kind of bummed out by a lot of the, you know, the e-bikes e and the scooters there in particular. I felt like I wasn't really seeing anything new or exciting. You know, there was a, a few standout companies that were like, okay, this is cool. Um, you know, companies that were working on like self-balancing tech for their scooters, but 99% of the stuff there, I was like, this is just kind of looks like rinse and repeat of the, of the last few years. Uh, so I'm very excited to be, especially for micromobility Europe to, you know, see, see what's different about the European market there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And it's your first time. So I think it's going to be, of course, great to have you. And it is very different. I think the, um, the innovation in Europe is is very different than what you see in America in a, in a good way. And then, of course, America brings its own skew. And I agree on CES. CES just seemed to be, has become an a, you know really much a, a vehicle tech, much more software-driven uh, or hard tech-driven like cameras, LiDAR, ADOS, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of just some like, you know, random Chinese brands, spec, uh, bike brands speckled in there, scooter brands. So yeah, it's kind of a a weird hodgepodge. I think you know we'll see much more representation at, at both microly uh, Europe and America of, of where small electric vehicles are going. Um, great. Well, Tyson, I think for for one, thank you for taking the time and sharing so much of the of uh, some of the history and, and what you've been up to. For folks that are looking to follow along with you, they can find you, um, of course, at the the our YouTube channel, the Micromobility Industries and Ride Review YouTube channel, as well as the our newsletter. Um, and on ridereview.com, all of those uh, reviews, of course, uh, you'll you'll see Tyson all over there. So yeah, Wanda, thank you for your time, Tyson, and your dedication to the industry and everything you've done for the industry. Um, and yeah, looking forward to to riding with you again soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks so much for having me on here. It was great to talk with you. Cool. Right on.